When I was about uh, 18 or 19, I learned how to read books. Now, I could read before then, and I had heard of books, and yet I'd never put the two things together. The kind of extent of my reading was like the menu and the chippy and the football results on CFAX. But then someone forced me to read a book. And although I probably didn't admit it at the time, I actually quite enjoyed it. And I began to think this whole reading thing might catch on. Eventually, someone gave me another book. And it was a little book by a guy called John Owen. And little books, as far as I'm concerned, are good books. And I read it, devoured it, loved it. A couple of years later, I was browsing my local uh, kind of friendly neighborhood Christian bookshop, and I saw another book by this guy, John Owen. Now, a little bit bigger this time, but I was a little bit bigger by then. So, feeling brave, uh, I saw John Owen. The cover's not great. It didn't really grip me. Picture of a building with one of those statues with not many clothes on. But the title gripped me. I love snappy titles. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Oh, that's good, I thought. So, cha-ching, bought the book. Went home, snuggled up in my beanbag. First page. To the reader. Reader. That was me now. Reader. If thou intendest. It's not a good start. (laughs) Okay, old language. If thou intendest to go any farther, I would entreat thee to stay here a little. If thou art, as many in this pretending age, a sign or title gazer, and comest into the books as Cato into the theater to go out again, Thou hast had thy entertainment, farewell, exclamation mark. Okay, let, let me paraphrase that. Owen basically says, first line, first page, if on the scale of idiot to professor, you're more comparable to an idiot, then just put the book down slowly and walk away. That's, that's what Owen's saying. And so what did I do? I did exactly as I was told. And I've never read more than the first page or the first line of the first page of Owen's book. His point is, if, if you're not very clever, then this book is really beyond you. It is too difficult for you to read. And so I said, fine. There was this kind of expectation that you had to be a bit of a boffin to understand this. Here's our question for tonight. Is the same true of the Bible? Does the Bible come with this warning to the reader that unless you're a bit of a prof, you should just bog off? Or is it accessible to anyone? Can anyone pick up this read and this book and read away? Is it only for the boffins and the academics and the geeks? Is it only for John Owen and not for Andy Prime? Is it only for the pastors and the priests and not for the punters and the pew? Well, if you lived in the 16th century, the Catholic Church would have said, "Uh, yes, actually, this book is too difficult for you. It is beyond your reach. And the Catholic Church said that they didn't want this jewel of the church to become the sport of the people. And so they kept it from the people in the pews. One of the ways they did was keeping it in Latin so that us English-speaking people couldn't understand what was being taught. Now, the Catholic Church abused that, and they began to use it as ways that they could teach whatever they wanted, distorting the gospel, kind of subtracting things, adding things to permit their own practices for their own ends. It's not for you. It's too difficult. It's beyond you. Let us do it. 
and the people sat in ignorance. It wasn't until the, Prophet, uh, the Protestant Reformation and guys like John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, Erasmus came along, read the scriptures, and understand that, that the Catholic Church was committing great treachery here. Actually, the Bible isn't beyond these people. It is for these people. And so they got to translating and translating and translating and copying and copying and copying. And they sent out their men with Bibles down the streets of our nation and just handed them out to people. They risked their lives. The Catholic Church didn't like it. And they just gave them away out of their own pockets. Why? Well, what drove these reformers was a belief that the Bible was not just for the elite priesthood. It was simple. It was clear. Clear for everyone to understand. So, if that is what the reformers believed, we want to work out tonight, is that a claim that the Bible makes for itself? Is it too difficult for us? Or is it clear? Well, Q Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10. I have one point tonight, and I'm going to say it twice. Same point for both passages. The word is very near to you. Did you see that repeated in both of them? The word is very near to you. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30 first. Moses stands here in Deuteronomy 30, kind of exhaling at the end of three mammoth sermons. You can almost hear the people kind of whimpering a little bit under the weight of kind of tri-sermon indigestion. They're thinking, Moses, time out, mate. Come on, take a breather. This is too much. Yet look, look at where Moses finishes. Look at where he climaxes in verse 11 to 13. Four knots, four negatives. This is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond you. It is not up in heaven. It is not beyond the sea. That is, this is not too complicated for you. This is not too much for you. This is not too academic for you. It's not too complex. It's not in an an impossible place. And it's not beyond an unbreachable barrier. Do you see that? It is near. To know God and understand his words is not just for those who can rip off their shirt and show the Superman costume. It's not for those who somehow have to ascend to the heights of heaven to explore the mysteries or those who descend into the depths of human consciousness. Where is it? Look at verse 14. No. Nah. It is very near to you. You don't have to be Superman. The statement is as simple as it is brief. It is very near to you. If you like cheesy phrases, you can smell it coming. Here it is. God's word is really clear because he has brought it really near. Well done. See it? Its clarity is its proximity. God has brought himself in his word very near. Near enough to hear, to see, to touch, to know. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart. Did you ever play that game when you were a kid? uh, Hot and cold? Do you remember that game? Okay, the game was, we used, one person would go out the room, we used to use a thimble. So you, someone would hide a, a thimble in the room, and then the person would spring in and prance about the room, and if they went over here, the person would go, oh, you're really cold, you're really cold. So you'd run over this side, and, oh, you're getting warmer, getting warmer. Do you not remember that game? The point was, if you were getting close to something, you were warm, hot, really hot. What does God say about his words? You're really warm. 
your real, not because you're prancing about trying to find it, but because he has brought it near. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Deuteronomy the language of nearness has been used. Let's go back to chapter 4. Uh, that's on page 182, if you've got one of the Bibles that is uh, near you in the pews. Um, chapter 4, verse 5. And try and spot the language of nearness. 4, verse 5. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? God's nearness shows his greatness and his grace to his people. His greatness and grace is displayed in that the infinite God would reveal himself to a finite people. That the God of all wisdom would impart that wisdom to a nation of all foolishness. That the God of all the universe would choose this little, tiny, insignificant, rebellious people to reveal himself to. That a holy God would come near to a sinful people. You see that his nearness testifies to his greatness. His nearness speaks of his grace. God's nature, who he is, as big, eternal, triune, uncreated, ought to be too difficult for my finite brain to understand. Because of my sinful nature, he ought to be beyond my reach. And yet in his grace, he has brought himself near in his word. It's not too difficult. It is not beyond your reach. In coming near, he has made himself very clear. You know, when you study the Bible, you don't have to leave afterwards in the kind of realms of mystery. No, his nearness speaks of the closeness of clarity. We can truly know the eternal, infinite, uncreated God. Okay, do you see that? Nearness speaks of clearness. It is very near. Well, Moses, what is the application of that? Why are you telling us that? You've said four negatives, and then you've said, but it's really near. What's the application? Well, look at verse 15. 14, end of 14. So you may obey it. You see that the clarity of Scripture has an ethical implication? It leaves us with a moral obligation. If something is really clear, you have no excuse not to obey it, do you? There's no excuse for, oh, I was unclear, I didn't understand it. If something is clear, right in front of your face, there's no excuse. Rodney, where's Rodney? Rodney, a couple of weeks ago, got a parking ticket while he was at church. Uh, He wasn't happy. Obviously, he didn't think Paul's sermon was worth 30 quid. But Rodney is pleading his case with Edinburgh Council. He is saying, well, because of all these tram works, because every time I drive around Charlotte Square, I'm going in a different direction on a different side of the roads, uh, because parking bays just seem to voluntarily move somewhere else, and lines appear and disappear at will, 
I should not have to pay my parking fine. His appeal to get off his mistake is a lack of clarity. Now, some people would say a double yellow line is pretty clear. (laughs) But you can take that up with Rodney. But do you see the point? You can plead an excuse if it was unclear, if there are trams. But if something is really clear, you have no excuse. What does it mean that God has made himself clear in coming near to us? So that you may obey. Obey. His nearness for the Christian means that our response to his grace should be obedience. It's really clear. Okay, let's, let's tease this out a bit. If God's word says clearly, do not worship an idol, what are we to do? Don't live our lives for comfort or pleasure or money or power or whatever. It's clear. If God's word says, do not commit adultery, then love and honor your husband. It's clear. If God's word says, do not lie, then stop deceiving your clients. It's clear. If God's word says, flee sexual immorality, then run. Flee. It's clear. If God's word says, do not get drunk, then don't flirt with that line of tipsiness. It's clear. Do you see the point? If something is really clear, the obligation it leaves us is that we must obey. There's no excuse for disobedience. Do you see how Moses Moses makes his point? Really clear. Therefore, so you must obey. Let's tease out this application. Let's go to the next layer of the onion. If we're told to, it's clear, so we obey. What's the next thing? Well, we need to know what it says, isn't it? Here's a really radical application for Christians. Read the Bible. Read it. Get to know it. If the reformers risked their lives and gave from their pockets to translate the Bible into our language, who are we to... No, in fact, that's a rubbish argument. If God came near and revealed his words, if he's come close, don't run away from that revelation. Read it. Get to know it. That applies to all of us, even if you're not a reader. Read it. Uh, Does this apply to you, might be the question in your mind. Do I have to? Well, Moses stands here in Deuteronomy 30 before who? All the people. All the people, without distinction. Not just the boffins. Everybody. So he has come so near that it is clear even to children. He says, children, honor your father and mother. So clear. It is so clear. He has come so near that it is clear even for idiots. So we read in Psalms. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So clear. It is, he has come near enough so it's even clear for lazy students. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? He's really kind. He comes even near to blokes. Men, listen. In Deuteronomy, he says, assemble the people, men and women, so that they can learn to fear me. This reading is not just for girls. Blokes, don't bring your blokishness of never reading instructions into your Christianity. This is for all of us. If we're going to obey, we need to know what we are to obey. So we read. Give yourself to it. Next layer of the onion. uh, We may need to study it. 
the Westminster Confession helpfully clarifies the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Listen to what it says. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. There are some bits that are harder than others, aren't there? Peter even says that of Paul's writings. Some of them are hard to understand. Hard, not impossible. The clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that everything is simple. Uh, You can have something that is really clear, which can be quite complex. And so we're to give ourselves to study God's Word so that we can understand better how we obey it. Wayne Grudem helpfully says, Scripture is clear, able to be understood, but not all at once, not without effort, not without ordinary means, not without the reader's willingness to obey, not without the help of the Holy Spirit, not without human understanding, and never completely. So we need to give ourselves to grow in our understanding of God's words. Because he's come near, it might mean that you need to roll up your sleeves and get ready to get your sweat on, to study what he has said and come to understand its clarity. If you're doing the Bible in a year, we've just kind of got through Ezra and Nehemiah. And this struck me. Clarity, but yet the need to study. So what happens? Ezra receives God's law. He reads it, and it is clear, so he understood it. Then what did he do? He committed himself to study that he might do what it says. Then we get to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah and a bunch of the priests decide to do what? Explain God's word to the people so they may understand it. Uh, The clarity of Scripture must not be an excuse for your laziness in reading Scripture. It might take a little bit of hard graft. But God has come so near that we need to understand what he has clearly revealed, even when it may be complex. See, we might disagree on different doctrinal things in this church. We might read Scripture differently and come to different conclusions. Does that mean that Scripture is unclear? No. The doctrine of clarity applies to what is being read, not the person who is reading it. And so we need to be those who, in humility, help each other to understand what the Bible says. A slight caution. We read Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Sometimes we can use that verse as a little bit of a junk drawer for all the things that we can't understand or actually don't want to understand. Oh, that's in the realm of mystery. We'll never get that. Well, if it's in God's will, does it, in God's word, does it fall under the secret or the revealed category? Oh, he's revealed it. So let's not use Deuteronomy 29, 29 as an excuse for this junk drawer of all this stuff we would rather not think about. We're to study, we're to think. Why? So that we may obey. Uh, The person who properly understands the implications of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture will have a well-thumbed Bible, and their life will be characterized by the obedience that comes from faith. What about the church who understands the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture? They'll use it. Their families will be places where, in the home, the parent knows that the Bible is so clear they can teach it to their children. In our Sunday school, that is what our Sunday school will be characterized by. Confidence in the clarity of God's words. What about when you go to visit someone in hospital? Is it clear enough for someone in the darkness of illness to help them? Yes. What about someone after the service who needs encouragement? Is it clear enough for them? Yeah. What about in your evangelism? Is it clear enough 
Yeah, you don't need to make it clear. You just need to open it and show them what is contained. Here is the clarity of Scripture. It is very near you, so you may obey. Now, this is the important bit. We need to get this bit. Here's how we get from Deuteronomy 30 to Romans chapter 10. And we need to see this. In Deuteronomy 30, the context is the expectation of failure. Will the people obey? No. Was that because God's word could not be understood? No. But it was because the people would not obey. Their obedience was only going to bring death, not life. And so the context is not only the expectation of failure, but also the making of a promise. Look at verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 6, here's a promise. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Where's the promise of life? It's in the promise of God. Not in their own obedience. It's not in their superman efforts. It's in the promise of God. Just as their salvation had preceded God giving them the law. Do you remember that chronology? He redeems them. He saves them. Then he says, obey. It's a response. Well, so too, the promise of life comes first. And obedience is the response to that. So here in Deuteronomy 30, we're waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And in Deuteronomy 30, it is distance, and we're waiting for it to be brought near. And so we flick through the pages of our Bible, and we follow the progression of salvation history until we get to Romans chapter 10. Here we find the fulfillment of the promise made. How is life going to come to a disobedient people? Romans 10. And here we see Paul kind of piggybacking on the language of Moses. Did you notice that as we read? He jumps on the back of the similar phrases. And he makes a similar but slightly progressed point. He moves from the clarity of God's words to the clarity of Jesus for salvation. He quotes Deuteronomy 30 to encapsulate the gospel. So, here we are in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, it is, the God's word is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond your reach. In fact, it's really near. We get to Romans 10, and he makes the same point. Salvation is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond your reach. It's not only for those who can take off the glasses and reveal the lycra. No, it is really near to you. God's greatness and his grace is seen in his word because in his words, we clearly see the Savior, Jesus. You see that? You don't need to ascend into heaven. Why not? Because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's come to you. You don't need to descend into the abyss. Why not? Because Jesus died and entered the grave for you and rose again. What is Paul's point? Salvation is not in your strenuous effort to obey God's law. It is not too difficult for you. You do not need to be Superman. You're not Superman. But salvation is found in 
Jesus, his grace. Jesus who came from heaven to earth and did what? Well, he obeyed when you disobeyed. And yet, he died under the curse of your disobedience so that you might live in the blessing of his obedience. He died the death of the unrighteous so that you might be made righteous. He lived a life loving God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet died for your love of self and the world and your idols. Here's the fulfillment of the promise made in Deuteronomy 30. Salvation is not far from you. It is not too difficult. It is not found in your strenuous effort to obey the law. Where is it? Very near to you. Why? Because Jesus has done everything necessary. See, the importance of the clarity of Scripture is the importance of the clarity of the Savior. Because in these pages we see Jesus Christ. That video of that pastor receiving this package of books, he wasn't crying tears of joy and delighted because in that package was Boris Johnson's autobiography. What was he delighted about? Because in those packages, he had the book, which was the portrait of the Savior. Did you see the promise he claimed? That just as Simeon held the baby Jesus in his hands, he knew that in, as he held God's word in his hand, he was holding the clear portrait of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession says something else helpful. Not only are all things not alike plain in themselves, but what is plain? Everything necessary for your salvation is clearly propounded within. Within the pages of this book is everything necessary for your salvation. That is, that Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. And do you see the simple response? How close is it to you? as close as a simple confession that Jesus is Lord. It's not too difficult for you. In fact, it's, beyond, it's, it's within your reach. It is not that you have to go searching to find God, but you see that he has come near to you. It is not that you have to attain and maintain some level of goodness, righteousness, but that he gifts you his. It's not a ground for your boasting, but it is to be received in the humility of faith. Do you see that in Romans 10 verse 9? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's inescapably clear. And it's wonderfully inclusive. Whoever you are, He has come near. So that in the clearness of this book, there is the closeness of a Savior. And so what what is the implication of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture? Well, Moses stands here, Paul stands here, and they say, see today, I set before you life and prosperity or death and destruction. It's clear. Those things come in the context of this clear Savior, and he says, now choose life. 
choose life. It's clear. We deserve nothing but to hear those words of Owen from God, don't we? Because of our sinful rebellion, thou hast had thy entertainment, farewell. Swept into the eternity of hell, an eternal distance between you and God. It's what I deserve. Farewell. You've had your entertainment. And yet here in the gospel, what does he say? It's been brought near. Near enough so that it can be a confession of your mouth that shows a new submission in your heart. Not to live your own little lordship, but to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Choose life. Choose life. Let's pray.